in a series right now called Jesus Questions. We're exploring a few. Uh, Jesus, at, at, there's, there's 307 questions asked by Jesus recorded in the Gospels. So we're not going through all of them, uh, but we're going through a few of them. And, and so, um, and because, and not only to, to ask what did he ask and what did it mean and what was he asking of his first century hearers, but in what ways and what does it look like for that question to transcend time and to be asked of us today? And so uh, we're continuing that series, and I'm, I'm so excited that we get to hear from Dr. Hudwick Williams here this morning. He's part of our teaching team. I feel so grateful for him to be a part of our church. And so welcome, Dr. Hud. Well, he's talking about food made me hungry, actually. I read a quote just a few weeks back that said Jesus ate his way through the Gospels. So almost every time Jesus is talking, he's eating. So that's a good thing, right? Amen. All right, without raising your hand, please. I don't want to embarrass anybody. Uh, I would like to know if you have somebody in your life that you don't trust. Somebody that is important to you. Somebody that was important to you. Somebody in your life that you don't trust. I want that to settle for just a minute because what we know about human experience is that trust is a necessary, not a byproduct, not a sidebar, not something else. It's a necessary element of life. We trust all the time. I, uh, when Nancy and I are watching movies, gosh, I can't tell you what, movies we watch, but <laughs> don't ask either. Uh, it's amazing to me how almost whatever the genre is, there's some place in the movie where somebody says, trust me, or you can trust me, or I'll always be there for you, or, and you know it's not true, but our hearts long for that to be true, don't, isn't it? And then when you have broken relationships, when you have ones where the trust is broken down and where there's been betrayal and when there's been, uh, yeah, some kind of uh, painful, painful breakdown of the relationship. And you can't seem to build a bridge back to it and you don't know how. And a lot of times this happens in families, poignantly in families. Well, we're going to talk about this concept, this construct this morning, trust, belief, and faith, they really are all intertwined with one another. They're, they overlap. They relate to one another. And it's hard to talk about one without the other. And I find myself, when I read it in Scripture quite often, separating them and not realizing they're really almost synonymous with one another. Trust, belief, and faith. Belief actually, this might help you just a little bit, belief is taking a, a value that you hold and adding emotion to it. So it's an emotionalized value, and it, it makes it stronger, it makes it more stubborn, it makes it more difficult to move. It makes it so it's kind of off limits to, to people to ask questions about what you believe. 
And yet, as Christians, we are called believers. So it's good to know that these things have intertwining relationships. Faith is this tricky, slippery idea that I've lived with my whole life. And so this morning, we're going to kind of pick it apart a little bit and maybe give it another uh, angle to look at in some way. But when you think about trust, uh, think about the idea that you can't live without it. And trust is based on knowledge. It's based on what you think you know. It's based on uh, what you're paying attention to in that storyline. And you've heard it said, and maybe discovered it in your own life, where you held a, a narrative about somebody for a long time, and you thought you knew that that narrative was the true narrative, and then you found out later that maybe there was another aspect or a broader message than you saw, or maybe there's a part of their story that you didn't know, and you were reacting to this one, not that one. It's hard to heal broken relationships. It's hard to rebuild trust. I do some of this professionally as a, for a living, and I find that maybe less than 1% of the people I've worked with over 50-some years have been able to successfully navigate rebuilding trust. We in the church call it reconciliation, but it's just so difficult because the pain that of betrayal and the pain of broken promises and the pain of being let down and the pain of being violated is so core to us, it's hard for us to shift that. And we keep focusing on it. And then we can't get away from it. Maybe this will help. An environment with excess information which is the environment in which we're living right now, devours the one thing that information truly demands, attention. Too much information devours attention. Attention is becoming scarce. So we have to use it wisely when we get it. What do you pay attention to? The reason I ask you if you had broken relationships or broken trust somewhere is because that's negative and usually we're very defended around it and we're kind of hypervigilant about it and we pay attention. What information consumes is rather obvious. It consumes the attention of its recipients. Pretty soon it will consume you. Hence a wealth of information creates a poverty of attention. What do you pay attention to? Do you pay attention to things that are life-giving to you or that are life-sucking? That, that builds you up, that sets you free, that allow you to sleep? Or are you focused on things that are dis- distractions and are, uh, weigh you down and you look around and you think, I can't handle that. We're getting ready to go into a season in America right now a political season that's going to be crazy uh, by any definition. And part of it is this, what I'm reading to you right now. Uh, Regardless of where you stand politically, that's not the issue. The issue is how do you sort through this and what do you pay attention to as you're doing that? 
we need to allocate that attention efficiently among the overabundance of information sources that might consume it. Try reading a book while doing a crossword puzzle. That's the intellectual environment of the internet. Reading a book, doing a crossword puzzle at the same time, good luck. The information in the world doubles every day. What they don't tell us is that our wisdom is cut in half at the same time. In order for us, as humans, who have not changed one bit since God created us in terms of our capacity, uh, in order for us to navigate the context we find ourselves in, we have to have some space. We have to be able to slow down. We have to select what we pay attention to. We have to not be in such a big hurry. We have to find margin. We have to take a breath. We have to be able to have a conversation. We have to be able to muse. We have to be able to wonder. We have to be able to stand in awe. Sometimes the very people that have hurt us, we don't have enough time to understand them, to show compassion toward them, to offer them forgiveness, which would be another whole week-long discussion if we just give ourselves to it just a little bit. We push these things out and cram more stuff in our lives. I just read an article about how fast our world is going and the, the quickness is forcing us to be more polarized and more adversarial and more defensive. We think we can manage more, but we're not going faster. The technology is. The volume of people are. So, there is a quote that has helped me think about what I want to talk about to you about this morning. And it goes like this. We need to know why we trust God, so we do not need to know what he is doing or why he is doing it. I want to read that again. We need to know why we trust God. We need to know why we trust. So we do not need to know what he's doing or why he's doing it. Versus turning it around, knowing what he's doing and why in order to trust him. Now, I grew up getting a mixed message of that, those two ideas. And the, the mixed message was uh, that the thing I was supposed to have faith in, the thing that I was drawn to, the thing that I was supposed to trust was the external things that I could see and measure and value. And that's not what God wants. God wants your heart. <laughs> he, he wants your allegiance. He wants your presence. He wants you to be with him. Sing the songs backwards. We sing, we want you to be with us. And how about doing it just the opposite way? Maybe he's longing to, to hang out with us. Well, the question I chose out of the 305, I just chose one and I said I would talk about the other 300. Does that bother you? <laughs> okay, no, no. It's in Luke chapter 22, chapter 8, verse 22, and it reads like this. Now, in one of those days, 
Jesus and his disciples got into a boat. Not Jesus and the whole crowd. Not Jesus and a bunch of random people. It wasn't a commuter boat. It was just Jesus and his disciples. And they got into the boat. And he said to them, let's go over to the other side of the lake. He had a goal. He had a concrete place to go. And he told them. He said, let's go over to the other side of the lake. He didn't say, let's just get in the boat and kind of float around. He said, let's go to the other side of the lake. And so they launched out. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep. Either he was super tired or pretty relaxed. Or both. Okay? And a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake, and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. They came to Jesus and woke him up and said, Master, Master, we're perishing. And he got up and he rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm. And he said to them, Where's your faith? I think you could finish that line, where's your faith in me? Because what he's asking is not can I calm the sea? Yes, I can. I have the power to do that. That's external. I'm trying to get you to trust me internally. Here's a little secret. When you read scripture, what you'll find is that scripture seems terribly indifferent to circumstances. Not everybody's healed. Not everybody's raised from the dead. Not everybody lives forever. Not everybody. Not everybody's rich. Not everybody's successful. The Bible's clear. Some people die. Some people are raised from the dead. What's why? Why is it so erratic? Why is it so different? Because that's external. And he's saying, you guys have put your faith in what? what you see. What you see is two things. You see wind and waves and water in the boat, and you what? You are afraid, it said, and amazed, saying to one another, who is this that he commands even the winds and the water to obey him? It's, it's unusual to have a Jesus dealing with things in nature rather than people or demons, right? He wants us to trust him in spite of the circumstance. Do you hear it? It's just a big piece of the puzzle here. That's why he's asking them, where's your faith? Where's your faith in me? Don't you trust me? How long have I been with you? How many more lessons do we have to have? So I'm going to show you my power. Let's see what happens. There's a story in Exodus 14. Uh, I tried to figure out how to read it fast enough to cram it into this time, and I can't do it. I, I read it. I really enjoyed reading it again. And Nancy said, don't you dare. Just, <laughs> just, just slow it down, and you synopsize it. Okay, so here they are. They have been born as a nation. They're in Pharaoh's country. Pharaoh finally lets them go. Why does he let them go? He lets them go because there's been 10 external, visible, powerful, in nature plagues. You seen those movies? You know, there's two or three movies about this, right? So if you don't trust Exodus 14, go look at the movies. 
I mean, it's big, spectacular stuff, you know, on the big screen. And, and I, I think, wow, I love this story. The Israelites are smack dab against water on one side and two mountains. And here comes Pharaoh after them because Pharaoh said, we made a mistake. We shouldn't have let them go. They're, they're an economic reality and we need the economics from them. So, hey, let's go get them. So here they come. And the people aren't very comfortable with that. And they're griping at Moses about it. And he says, just stand still, be quiet, and let us see what God does. Well, God opens the sea, saves the people of Israel, and wipes out 600 chariots and all the men and all the horses. And the very last verse in Exodus 14 sounds something like this. And they saw, they saw the great power of God as if they hadn't seen 10 great powers already. Number 11 shows up and they saw the great power of God and they believed it, it says. And then they had a worship service, chapter 15. It's quite a story. I mean, just read chapter 15. It's pretty spectacular, actually, in and of itself. But what are they, what are they doing? They're praising God on the wrong side of the water. Do you hear it? They're not able to trust him. They're trusting what they see. They're trusting what they experience. They're trusting the external. Christ died for your heart. He wants your heart. He wants the internal of you, and then he's got the rest of you. Too often, what we do is we pose on the outside and so we come to church and we pay our tithes and we go to Bible studies and we do whatever else it takes but nothing changes on the inside and that I think is what Jesus is saying to his disciples in this he says where's your faith is the object of your faith trusting in me or is the object of your faith trusting in the power that I'm exercising on your behalf do you need me to change your circumstances for you to trust me or do you trust me in spite of whether the circumstances change I have a family I know, dear family I know, I know them all, and the mother was diagnosed about a week and a half or so ago uh, with what looked like impossible cancer, all through her bones, blah, blah, blah. Uh, just a couple days later, a couple days ago, they got word that this, this is a kind of cancer, after looking at it again, that they can now treat and maybe she's got five years or 15 years. I wonder if they trusted God on the wrong side of the water. Our medical world is so fabulous, it's just unbelievable, and yet at the same time, it puts us in this dilemma that we think we know. And, we, and so we grab a hold of what medicine is offering us instead of coming into the into the doctor's office, already believing, already trusting in a God who will sleep through this dilemma for us, but not for him. Telling us that 
You can be at ease and you can be at rest and you can trust me regardless of how it turns out. Because if he tarries, they're all going to die anyway. That's not fatalistic. It just simply is telling the truth. And I think quite often our faith, where is our faith? It's not actually in Jesus. It's actually in the power that we see. So here's something that Francis Schaeffer, who was a theologian, says. He says, uh, Christian argument is always about what's true, never about power. The Christian claim is that it's true. The Christian claim not is not that it'll win in the sense of uh, winning the game at the end of the day. It's about true truth. And he says, it's the truth that sets you free. And it's, he, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Why? Because he's trying to do the same thing with us as he is with his disciples. Can you trust me? Over and against what you see. Schaefer went on and he said, uh, if somebody tells you to just believe, that's patently a non-Christian statement. You are to ask questions. You are to inquire. You are to doubt. Faith has a component of doubt richly embedded in it. It is a way that you strengthen. It's a way that you stretch your muscles. It's a way that you grow spiritually. And then Schaefer goes on and he says, it's not just about believing. It's about asking those questions. And he says, when you ask those questions, begin to look for the kind of answers that God gives. God gives good, listen, and sufficient answers. Not complete, not certain, not cookbook, not a chart of some kind. He gives what? He gives a relational answer to you. This passage is a test. But every day is a test, folks. Every day you live, you run into something that's a test of your faith. Are you going to walk by faith or are you going to walk by sight? You're going to move into trusting God more or are you going to look at your circumstances and try to determine whether he's worthy of trust? Well, maybe I can help you just a little bit by illustrating faith with two things. Uh, the first one is, metaphors fall apart pretty quickly, so work with me, okay? Uh, this used to be a really solid metaphor. It's a little weaker now because we've got electric cars. Anyway, <laughs> I'm trying. Uh, think, of, think of your dashboard, and almost all dashboards still have an EF uh, gauge. What's the E stand for? Doesn't stand for enough. <laughs> Teenagers think it stands for enough. <laughs> Dad, can you come get me? You know? Okay, so it's empty. How do you fill it? Well, you go to a filling station. We've got a funny story about driving an electric car trying to find a filling station in England. It, anyway, 
It doesn't work, by the way. So if I have this hose and I attach the hose to the car and the other end to a gas tank, a big tank, then I can fill my car with gas. The hose represents what faith is. Faith is a vehicle or a carrier or an instrument. It carries whatever you want it to carry. You are a faith-based creature. I am a faith-based creature. Trust is so embedded in me and faith is so embedded in me, I can't live any other way. I'm going to trust something. You don't ever have to darken the doors of a church for me to know that you have to walk by faith in this world. It's the way God made us. So I can, but I can take this same hose and I can attach it to a water tank and fill my car and it'll say full, but I won't get out of the driveway because faith will carry whatever you ask it to. The disciples were in the boat and they shifted their faith from what? Keeping their eyes on Jesus to their eyes on the storm. To a set of circumstances that they that overrode, that was louder, that demanded more attention. Trust, belief, faith. It actually is a description of mystery. And we don't like mystery. We want to eliminate mystery. We want answers. We want surety. We want certainty. When what God offers us is relationship. Messy relationship. Loving relationship. Hebrews 11, chapter 6. And without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe, look at the words they're using, believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Why do you go, why, why do you go to God to, to get out of some circumstance or to be in relationship? Too often we sell it as a way to have a smooth, happy life. But what he offers is not happy. What he offers is joy. Fundamental peace. And he wants you to be participant in bringing his kingdom into this world. That's your world. That's your family. That's those broken relationships where the trust is thin, if it even exists. Where you can help heal that. Where you can help uh, draw into that space the kind of compassion and love that he came for in the first place. Romans chapter 1. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. This is Paul talking. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written. But the righteous man shall live by faith. Well, live by faith in what? In Jesus or in the storm? In Jesus or in what I see? In Jesus or my education? In Jesus or my health? In Jesus or something else? Or in Jesus? And so when Jesus asks his disciples, he says, where's your faith? Where'd it go? 
2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Just think again about the Israelites. They were, they were functioning based on sight, but they were also infants. If you're going to grow, you're going to grow in your faith, and what your faith does is it, is it gets stronger. You don't get more faith. Romans 12 says to each is allotted a measure of faith. You have a measure of faith, I have a measure of faith. Don't compare them. You're just responsible for your measure of faith. And just like a baby is born with all the muscles they'll die with, you're, you're given faith in that same way. What makes it strong or weak is whether you use it or not and what it's attached to. Whether it's actually functionally going to change living or not depends on what your source is. Are you trusting Jesus? And that's why he says, where's your faith in me? What happened to it? Have I been with you all this time and you're, and you're missing it? <laughs> Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. You've been practicing different aspects this year. That's the word I get for this church. And, and part of the practice is to, to put this into practice. To understand that why you study, why you study the Word of God, why you hear the Word of God is so that you can adjust and adapt and, and be creative with the resource He's given you already, the faith that He's already given you, and you can begin to apply it to your own life and to your own soul, and so there's a, a joy that goes with you regardless of the circumstance you find yourself in. A bad diagnosis doesn't, isn't fun, but it doesn't rob you of joy, Right? This is the world we live in. It's going to get worse, I think, not better, my hunch. But whether I'm right or wrong doesn't really matter. First Peter, in this you greatly rejoice. This is Peter who betrayed Jesus. Listen to him. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Every day is a test. Why should you be surprised? You should actually welcome them because it tells you where you are, tells you how you're doing, tells you what kind of shape you're in, tells you what kind of strength you have. And he says, so that the proof of your faith is more precious than what? Gold, which is perishable even though tested by fire. And it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Look at what it's saying. You don't see him. You walk by faith, not by sight, right? You love him. And though you don't see him now, you believe in him. Once again, walk by faith, not by sight. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. He's trying to get you back inside so you can live out of the in, inside out rather than the other way around. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Now, I have one other illustration I want to do quickly, and they're going to shoot me, but it's a goofy picture of a, it's called a hidden picture. Now, I don't know if you can look cross-eyed at that long enough to find the hidden picture, but I, if you've ever done one of these, some people can't do them, some people do them and fall down dizzy, other people really get them, right? 
But here is a, is a good illustration of, I think, what faith actually is. It is designed by God for us to be able to see depth and thickness and substance and in, in the world. Uh, typically, when you look at a picture like this, I don't think it works on the screen, but uh, uh, you just see the, the flat picture. But if you look at it, with your eyes crossed and your hands crossed and a few other things, uh, <laughs> there's an embedded picture in it, and it's it looks like it's got 3D depth to it, and it's pretty soon you it just kind of pops out, and you say, "Where was that just a second ago?" You know, and then you blink and it's gone again, and so that's to me what faith is. Faith has this capacity to see depth and structure, and it and it. Often you'll, you'll see in Scripture things like looking at life through the eyes of faith allows you to see it in more depth so that you can settle your soul in the circumstances and honor God in the middle of that. You've been saved through faith. Faith is not of yourself. By grace, through faith. Faith is not of yourselves. That's a gift. Grace is the thing that saves you. Yes. Take the grace, start living, and separate, if you will, uh, trying to evaluate whether God's good or not based on the circumstances. Understand why he's good so that the circumstances you can enter into and be redemptive or rejoicing depending on what they are. It says you can... Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That's why. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him won't perish but have eternal life. Every week this church asks this same question of you. And it should. Maybe you've been around the church a long time. I know pastors that have preached for years without believing in Jesus. Without exercising faith. Based on works. Trying to earn it in some way. I don't know. Performance. You name it. It's just an invitation to not get stuck on the boat <laughs> freaking out about something that God says I got that can I have you let me pray Father thank you for being so personal so loving so intimate so kind so gracious so compassionate so gentle, so humble. Never wielding power to try to gain access to our souls, but continually inviting us over and over and over again into your quiet, gentle ways that allows us to live fully and rejoice fully 
and taste fully that you are good, that there is no other. Grant us the capacity to trust you more. Protect these people from me. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for your son whose work on the cross was enough. It's in his name, the strong.